Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good to be together again for worship today, and uh, I see some faces I don't know. Good to have you here, and uh, we trust that you'll be pointed to Jesus as we worship together today. If you uh, would like, we'd, we'd love to be able to get to know you more, and one way to would help that, there's a card on the end in the pews there. You could fill that out with a little information about yourself, and then just uh, hand it to me after the service, and, and I'd love to visit with you more or follow up in that way. We've been walking through the letter, Paul's first letter to Timothy in our messages here this fall, and, and we're in chapter 5 today, but before we get to that today, I, I want to ask you, have you ever thought of what a description of a perfect pastor might look like? <laughs> uh, apparently there are several people who have, because there are a variety of descriptions like that online, and so I, I looked at them and, and kind of compiled a list of some of those I'm going to share with you today here, it went like this. The, the perfect pastor is one who will be able to please everyone in the church and meets every church member's expectations. He speaks the truth, stands up for injustice, but never steps on anyone's toes. Preaches exactly 20 minutes and follows it with an invitation in which everyone is convicted, but no one is offended. His, his every sermon is so inspiring, it makes you cry, laugh, and think deeply about everyday life. He's 27 years old with 30 years of preaching experience. <laughs> Has a burning desire to work with youth and spends lots of his time with senior citizens. He works from 8 in the morning till 10 at night, makes 10 calls a day on church members, spends every free moment evangelizing non-members, and is always found in the church office when needed. He always has time for church council and all the committees and never misses the meeting of any church organization. Makes $1,000 a week, gives 100 a week to the church, stands ready to contribute to every other good cause and to help panhandlers that drop by the church on their way somewhere. He's handsome, but not overpowering. Drives a late model car, buys a lot of books, keeps his office neat, wears nice clothes, and has a nice family. He spends five evenings a week at home with his family, plus a day off, and yet is always available for parishioners. He smiles a lot and has a keen sense of humor, all the while keeping a straight face that shows serious dedication to all tasks. He's talented, gifted, scholarly, practical, popular, compassionate, understanding, patient, level-headed, dependable, loving, caring, neat, organized, cheerful, and above all, humble. <laughs> now I think we know there are no perfect pastors. either. Um, not, not here at Maranatha in the past or the present or anywhere else. Um, and I shared this description with you today, not because I am feeling particularly picked on by anyone. Actually, just the opposite is true. Uh, I am amazed that, that some of you, having known me as long as you have um, and seen my weaknesses, uh, still have gone out of your way to encourage me and my family here, even just lately with uh, the Pastor Appreciation Sunday and gifts and cards and so on. And uh, thank you much for your encouragement to me in various ways, 
including allowing me to have that sabbatical break there during August and September. As we look into 1 Timothy chapter 5 today, Paul addresses Timothy and also congregations at Ephesus about how to deal with their leaders, particularly those that he refers to as elders, um, which really um, served in a role much like uh, we think of as a pastor today. And, and uh, as I was studying this text, I came up with a working title as I was working on getting an outline together, and, and it was this, Practical Guidelines for Appreciating or Getting Rid of Your Pastor. <laughs> I decided not to publish that one. Um, I didn't want to be blamed for a rash of pastors moving uh, with people that clicked into that online. Um, but look with me, please, at, at chapter 5 as we then look at this this role of the pastor and, and uh, leaders in the church and what God's word says about that. First uh, Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25. I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as I read. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging or doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands or, or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word, and, and uh, Lord, we thank you for the congregations and pastors that you... Um, are at work in, and we pray that uh, you would be at work here among us. And as we meditate on this, Lord, that you would speak to each of our hearts about our own lives and our church and our leaders. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Lenski's title for this section was probably better. It was Honoring, Correcting, and Selecting uh, Elders. And so first in verses 17 to 18 here, Paul is stating to honor elders who rule well. And now early in our study of 1 Timothy, we talked of how Paul seems to use two terms somewhat interchangeably when referring to leaders, um, overseers and elders. And really, overseer explains the work to be done, whereas elder explains the dignity of that office. And Paul talks here then of those who rule well and you know, ruling tends to conjure up in our minds uh, a king or a dictator or something like that. And that's not what a pastor is to be, though he does end up with some oversight responsibilities. And so we need to understand here, Paul is referring here to those who preside well or oversee well, um, those who carry out their general duties well. And, and Paul says about them, let them be considered worthy of double honor. Now, double honor, what does that mean? Well, some have suggested it is double pay. Maybe uh, that's the basis that some televangelists and celebrity pastors uh, have for getting extra wealthy. But, but I think they are rather self-serving in, in coming to that conclusion, and, and they have uh, too much to say, really, about setting their own salaries. 
John Stott says this, double honor equals both respect and remuneration, or both honor and honorarium, and he bases that on what comes next here. Um, and so who again does Paul say should be considered worthy of such? Well, particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching. And now let me first establish here, studying and preparing and, and preaching and teaching is labor. And I didn't used to see it that way, honestly. Uh, I remember as a college student when I, I would uh, occasionally go home on a weekend um, with loads of homework and, and deadlines that were looming and, and thinking, you know, I'm going to get lots of my homework done here this weekend. But, you know, when Saturday morning rolled around and, and I heard tractors running out there in the yard and, and voices of my dad and my younger brothers out there, um, I just felt like an absolute heel sitting in the house with a book. And shortly after, every time, I would be out there joining them, doing real, physical work. Well, after 10 years of schooling, uh, following high school, uh, when I got my first pastoral call, I would go over to the church office just next door and, and study for hours, preparing weekly sermons. And I would just be amazed that they actually pay me for doing this. Till I realized that, you know what, it seems like Sunday and Wednesday comes about every other day, and, and there are funerals and weddings uh, and a bunch of other things, and plus I'm trying to get to know my parishioners and visit them. Verse 17 here says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And, and that word labor here is, is work until exhausted. And I've discovered that pastoral ministry is, is a bit like farming. It's not banker's hours. Uh, on the farm, you know, for instance, when there's an animal that's in crisis, you need to do whatever it takes to help it. And so it is sometimes with my sheep. And on the farm, when, when you um, have that crop that needs to get off, it's harvest time. Well, in the pastoral ministry, it seems that the Lord brings along harvest time on no clear schedule. And on the farm, some jobs take longer than you thought they would. I've discovered that some sermons come together a lot slower than others. Some passages stump Pastor Ryan and I and take longer to labor over. The Apostle Paul instructs us here concerning those who labor in preaching and teaching. With, and he gives an Old Testament example then from Deuteronomy chapter 25 where he says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And uh, this is far removed from the way we do harvest these days, but, but the Gentiles were known to muzzle the oxen as they would drive them around in circles, trampling on the grain to thresh out the wheat and the chaff. And uh, Moses in Deuteronomy forbade that practice, and he said the oxen should be allowed to eat um, its fill of grain even as it threshed. And Paul's point here is this, if, if God cares about a working animal being adequately fed, he also is concerned about the same for church workers. And so he says, feed them as they work. And maybe this is a good basis for uh, regular church potluck dinners and the Wednesday night suppers here. Uh, I'm joking, but, but you know, I sure do appreciate those meals that we eat here together in the fellowship we enjoy that way. Paul also says here to pay them for their labor. And here he's quoting words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus said, the laborer deserves his wages. And I'm very thankful to have served 32 years in congregations that have believed that the laborer deserves his wages. And, and, and they've paid me better than I deserve and quite adequately to provide for my family. Well, verses 17 to 18 there were about showing appreciation for good pastors. 
verse 19 to 21, then go on to really give us grievance procedures for the not so good. And with that, let me just say this, that, that even good pastors are not perfect and at times ought to have issues of their lives addressed. And, and Paul says here concerning that, though, handle accusations against them carefully, but still hold them accountable. You know, we've had our fill of politics stuff here just lately, and in these last weeks with elections just looming around the corner, there have been a lot of accusations against opponents that were thrown out there. And after elections, then there tends to be threats by the opposite party of investigations and of some of those allegations. Well, such mudslinging and, and witch hunting should not happen in the congregation, particularly concerning their leaders. And, and so how is it that we avoid that in the church? Well, Paul says here essentially, don't, don't set out to investigate every accusation. Don't even listen to them unless two or three witnesses substantiate the charge. You see there, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so when someone then speaks, accusing a leader of wrongdoing, respond by saying, well, are you sure that is really even true? Do you have other witnesses that would verify what you're saying? If, if not, then we need to just drop this right here. Well, why is it that Paul says this? Well, it's because pastors and others in church leadership are, are vulnerable to slander which can then destroy their ministry and their life and also even that of the congregation. And this admonition, though, applies much wider than just uh, concerning church leaders. Uh, we, all, we all have a responsibility to guard against gossip. And often there, there are other people around us far more juicy to talk about than the pastor anyway, um, but that's not okay either. What is there? What, what about the, in those cases where, where um, there are more witnesses with the same concern, the same accusation against the church leader? Then, then it needs to be taken seriously, we're told here, and investigated. If the accusation is shown to be true and is clearly sinful and not just something that people dislike, then, then it needs to be confronted. And if they aren't confronted, then they become emboldened to continue in blatant sin. Well, just how should that confronting take place? Well, in our church constitution, we have guidelines for that. Matthew chapter 18, and, and, and these verses, by the way, aren't just regarding leaders, but they're for all believers, and, and there it tells us, Jesus' words, if your brother sins, go and show his fault in private. If he listens to you, you won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector, or in other words, an unbeliever. And Paul tells Timothy here that then if they persist in verifiable sin, then rebuke them in the presence of the congregation. Verse 20, as for those that persist in sin, that sin that is known publicly then, then rebuke them in the presence of all, uh, that the rest may stand in fear. You see, blatant and public sin is to be rebuked publicly. However, that should be really the last resort. John Stott says it this way, private sins should be dealt with privately and only public sins publicly. It's neither right nor necessary to make what is private public until all other possibilities have been exhausted. Well, in the case of open, ongoing sin of a church leader, 
that's living in unrepentance, and Timothy is instructed here, they are to be reproved publicly. And if they're not, then what happens is that others are encouraged to live in open sin as well, and that's a dangerous thing for that individual's personal heart and life, and also even for the congregation. Well, let's be straight then about this here. About, let's some, look at some examples concerning this. Then. In, in churches throughout our land, biblical morality has become compromised. Sexual relationships outside of marriage have become common. Cohabitation before marriage accepted as normal. Homosexuality and same-sex marriage embraced and, and even clergy then are free to live in open immorality. And the Apostle Paul says, if any of that is going on among leaders in your congregation, it's to be rebuked. And the same is the case if they're preaching things that are contrary to Scripture in some areas. You see, preaching and teaching doctrinal heresy is also open sin, and it needs to be confronted. And so if church leaders will no longer preach the need for repentance of personal sin and preach that Jesus is the only way of salvation, then it needs to be confronted because those are non-negotiables. And so if that describes what's going on in your congregation, then you need to be willing to confront it. Privately, and then with two or three witnesses, and, and then even publicly, and even then be willing to leave if the leadership will not listen and turn. And, and Paul gets very serious here in verse 21. He says this next thing, he, and he's reminding Timothy here then just who is watching him as he leads in these congregations at Ephesus, and, and he deals with these accusations made against other leaders. And he's pointing out here, it's not just the parishioners that are watching, or even the other leaders in the congregation, but God himself and the angels are watching. And so he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you. That is, I, I solemnly tell you this. Don't prejudge and don't show partiality. Now, prejudging is coming to a conclusion before we're even here in the case. The word prejudice comes from this. And we can all tend to have some prejudices regarding certain types or groups of people. Church leaders especially need to guard against prejudices. And also against showing partiality, which is giving special treatment then to favorites or to family and so on. And unfortunately, down through church history, there have been many examples of favoritism shown to relatives or a class or tribe or friends or, or people they like or somebody that paid them money. And there can be a temptation for those in leadership and for the rest of us too to show partiality and, and excuse our favorites and just kind of wink at sin of a relative, for instance, and even though it's open and known. And in a local congregation, then when there's large clams, it can get rather tricky to address open sin. But it's also dangerous not to address it. And so Paul reminds Timothy as a young leader, remember God's watching, Jesus Christ sees and even the angels also are observing. And so I solemnly declare to you, keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. And you know, as we think about that today, God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels were watching Timothy and the elders, and they're still watching. They're watching us too. And that should be a reminder to cause all of us to watch our words and our actions. Remember, Linsky's title for the section was Honoring, Correcting, and Selecting Elders. Let's look at the selecting part. Don't be quick to ordain someone, we're told here as we go on in verse 22 and following. Don't be hasty in laying on of hands. And we talked in previous weeks of how Timothy had hands laid on him at the time of his ordination to ministry and, and how, 
um, we still practice something like that um, in our church fellowship when we ordain men to the pastoral ministry. And this isn't to be taken lightly or done hastily. And in order to uh, get on the clergy roster of our AFLC, there, there are requirements and, and there are time frames. Um, it, and if you take the normal route, if a person's going through seminary, then that involves five interviews with different church boards and, and then four intense years of seminary training, including a year of internship in a local congregation. They interview with the board of trustees in order to get into seminary, and then they are on a year of probation. And then that's followed by uh, an interview after a couple more years of study before they can go on internship. And then they're under the authority of a local congregation and pastor during that year of internship. <clears throat> and then they're interviewed again to, to see if they're ready to graduate. And, and then interviewed by a different committee, the Colloquy Committee, to determine if they're fit for ordination. And, and then by the Coordinating Committee in order to be placed on the clergy roster. And then they wait for a congregation to call them. Ryan's nodding over there. You remember going through all those meetings, don't you? Well, those who have served as lay pastors get tested maybe more in the local congregation even before applying for lay pastor status. And if they're approved, then they are required to yearly um, go for ongoing training at our seminary. And those pastors that come to the AFLC from other denominations uh, are interviewed by two boards and, and then put on a fellowship roster, which is a probationary time as well, before they're accepted on the clergy roster. And we take all of those precautions because we take seriously what Paul's admonition is here. Placing someone in the role of a pastor of a congregation is not to be taken lightly or done hastily. To do so, Paul is pointing out here, is, is to take part in the sins of others. Because you see, if, if we approve someone for spiritual leadership role and when we know he isn't fit for it, then we're showing favoritism and, and, and we let them anyway, then when they mess up later and do harm to the Lord's work in that congregation, we become guilty in participating in their sin. There are three more brief things to cover here in the last three verses. Verse 23 seems to be a little bit of an aside here. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And, and this isn't to be seen as an encouragement for all of us to drink wine, okay? Um, Paul doesn't know what your stomach ailments are or any of your other health issues, but he did know Timothy's, and he's addressing that personally here, um, giving him some personal medical advice. Use a little wine medicinally. And, and you know, in many countries around the world today, we, we, they, they don't have safe drinking water. When I was over in Russia years ago, uh, I bought water to drink wherever I went because it wasn't safe to drink from the tap. Well, very likely, Timothy's stomach problems were due to drinking contaminated water. And in his day, they didn't have bottled water, and so wine was safer to drink and also might soothe his stomach. And so Paul wants Timothy in good health and, and able to carry out his duties. <laughs> now back to Paul's recommendations and cautions here for who you lay hands on and appoint to lead in the church. He says this, Some sins are evident before Judgment Day, others not until then. And so if you know someone that is living in unrepentant sin because they're doing it openly, you need to deal with it. However, some sins are practiced in private and we have to leave that in God's hands to deal with. And ultimately, if they don't deal with it in this life, then they will answer to him um, when Christ returns on Judgment Day. And he's saying the same is true of good works. Some people's good deeds are very noticeable now, and, and they may get recognized and rewarded now. Others are done behind the scenes and rewarded only in eternity. <clears throat> so now it comes to this. 
Why do we have a whole sermon? Largely on the role of pastors and church leaders. Honoring ones that are working hard and doing their job well. Correcting ones that aren't. And publicly rebuking those that are living in open sin. And also being very careful who we ordain to pastoral ministry. We do so because the Apostle Paul thought it was very important to address. And it was so important because, you see, there is a world around us that desperately needs to know Jesus. And pastors and church leaders are encouraged then to keep on leading in their congregations and declaring God's word in order that sinners would hear the law that points out their sin and convicts them and the gospel that tells them there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And in local congregations is where that ministry takes place, and local congregations have leaders. And so if there are congregational leaders that are not living consistent with what God's word says is right, and who are teaching contrary to God's word, then the witness of the Christian church and of Jesus Christ is greatly hindered. And if hands are laid hastily on people to become church leaders and they're not adequately trained and scrutinized, then the whole congregation can even be destroyed. And God's desire is that the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads and does so through a local congregation all over the world that that would be the case. Congregations that have godly leaders that are living in, in repentance and faith. They're not perfect, but they seek to live day by day in repentance and faith in Jesus and to proclaim God's word with power and authority of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you for... This your word to us, even as it was a word to Timothy in his situation, is a word to congregations and pastors all over the place. And, and Lord, as we think about our country today, we pray for local congregations across America. We pray that they would hold up biblical standards for leadership. We pray for pastors to be convicted of sin where that is needed and to be strengthened in their Christian walks. We, we pray for revival in churches across our land, Lord. And the parishioners and congregations that have strayed from your word would be bold in standing for the truth and, and given wisdom to know when to stay and when to leave and to go where your word is upheld. And Lord, we ask that you would be at work in each of our hearts and lives. Lord, if there are things you've spoken to us about in, in our life even today, that you would help us, that we would live in repentance and faith. And we thank you that in Jesus there is forgiveness of, of all sin and, and there is eternal life and there is power to change. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work among us here. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to sing a favorite hymn of mine. It was actually, I believe, one that we sang at, at my ordination service, Lead On, O King Eternal. It's a great reminder for all of us as Christians that uh, as we look to the Lord and think about the world around us and we have concerns, maybe even after elections, but, you know, God is on the throne. And we look to to the Lord Jesus to lead us.